Blog Talk Radio. Ross Green here, doing a follow-up discussion from the follow-up discussion from the screening of The Kids We Lose. Um, We arranged this rather hastily, so we're not sure how many of you are able to join in or listen afterwards. But um, the call-in number, if you would like to join in, is 347 994-2981. We are still, of course, interested in your reactions to the kids we lose. Um, And I'm going to go over some more of those. But we also are very interested in hearing from those of you who have been either unsuccessful in your schools. We'd like to hear uh, at reducing restraint and seclusion. We'd like to hear what the impediments are. Um, so that we can help you. We'd also like to hear from people who've been successful in reducing or eliminating restraint and seclusion in schools because you have wisdom that people who've been having difficulty in that realm could benefit from. Also on the call with me is Christine McIntyre, who is our Director of Advocacy at Lives in the Balance and is spearheading our efforts to give you the help you need, but also to make sure that people are aware of the toll that is taken on kids, classmates, and caregivers by continuing to engage in restraint and seclusion. Um, Christine, welcome to the program. Happy to be here and uh, eager to hear what questions people have tonight. So we have some questions that people have emailed in, but we already have a caller. So let's take our caller first. And by the way, we're only going to go an hour um, on this program. I scheduled it for an hour and a half, but I forgot or at least overlooked the fact that uh, today is also my son's birthday, and I don't want to miss too much of it. So we'll go an hour, and then we'll let you know what we have planned for follow-up as well. But we do have a caller already, and that caller is in area code 603. You are on the air. Tell us what's on your mind. Area code 603, going once, going twice. If you called into the program to listen to the program, What you want to do instead is um, use the link to listen to the program. We're just reserving the number for call-ins to people who want to actively participate in the program. So um, one of the big reactions that, and it wasn't necessarily surprising, that we had to the film that we received many emails about is that people felt that it blamed educators. Um, And so I wanted to respond to that because um, I appreciate the sensitivity, but 
You know, in the collaborative and proactive solutions territories, we don't think it's important to blame anybody. And it certainly wasn't our goal to make educators feel blamed. Educators happen to work in schools, of course, and um, therefore, if things are going on in schools that are counterproductive, then I can imagine how educators would feel blamed. But the reality is uh, we tried to include a lot in the film so that educators knew how much they were appreciated. Um, I remember the one line distinctly of the um, assistant principal, I believe, in school in Florida, saying that people have no idea how much educators devote time-wise, money-wise, you name it-wise, to doing right by kids. What I think has happened is that I think many educators have been trained in a certain way, and a lot of educators have been trained to believe that de-escalating and restraint and seclusion are crisis prevention strategies and that they keep us safer. What I've been saying for a very long time is that they are crisis prevention strategies only in the most narrow sense of the word. Yes, de-escalating a kid will possibly make it so that you don't have to restrain or seclude the kid. But even de-escalating occurs very late in the game. And restraint and seclusion occurs even later than that. And even the kid's behavior occurs late in the game. So as I mentioned on the first follow-up broadcast, um, the earliest you can get is identifying and solving the problems that are causing the behaviors that are causing us to feel like we have to de-escalate, that are causing us to feel like a restraint and seclusion is necessary. I don't blame educators for their training. We don't blame educators for the very difficult students that are still walking through the door and in still larger numbers than ever, it seems. The key point here is that um, we're going to need new lenses. We're going to need new timing. We're going to need new practices. And that's nobody's fault. It just is what it is. Now we have a caller. Then I'll move on to some other things that people emailed us about. I think this is a caller, area code 267. Uh, what's on your mind? Uh-oh. <laughs> Area code 267, are you there? I think not. Um, the call-in number again, for those of you who want to actively participate in the discussion, is 347-994-2981. That's the call-in number, but only if you want to actively participate in the discussion. Um, the other, of course, big question that people had was what should they be doing instead? Well, at Lives in the Balance, we do disseminate a particular model. It's called Collaborative and Proactive Solution. There's a lot of research telling us that when Collaborative and Proactive Solutions is being implemented, 
uh, restraint and seclusion are either dramatically reduced or completely eliminated. And yes, we are big fans of the collaborative and proactive solutions model. But at Lives in the Balance, if people find a way to reduce or eliminate restraint and seclusion through some other methodology besides collaborative and proactive solutions, we are very, very happy. Very happy. So we are not um, solely committed to collaborative and proactive solutions. It happens to be the model that we disseminate at Lives in the Balance and have been for a very long time. Um, we're okay with any model that um, is proactive, truly preventing crises, not managing them. Um, we're good with that. So while if you contact Lives in the Balance, what you're going to get from us, if you're looking for our help in terms of implement, intervention, you're going to get collaborative and proactive solutions. Here's the other interesting thing. My experience tells me you can get rid of about 50% of restraints and seclusions just by trying not to restrain and seclude kids. My experience tells me you're going to get 50% of the way there just by trying not to use those procedures. It's the remaining 50% that's extremely difficult. Um, the remaining 50% is going to require um, an actual intervention. I think you can get the first 50% by understanding the difficulties of behaviorally challenging kids better recognizing that it's lagging skills, not lagging motivation, recognizing that um, characterizations like attention-seeking and manipulative and coercive and unmotivated and limit-testing do not apply, recognizing that um, you don't want to be restraining and secluding kids because that's simply re-traumatizing the already traumatized. Those are your new lenses. And that's going to get you 50% reduction, in my opinion. But I've worked with a lot of programs that even had the right lenses on, a lot of them saying that they were trauma-informed, but who were still restraining and secluding like there's no tomorrow. And that's where the new timing and the new practices come in. It is great to say we don't want to be restraining and secluding kids. That is a great thing to say. And if we're serious about it, there's your first 50% reduction. To get the rest of the way there, um, you really do have to be proactive and really do have to be doing true crisis prevention. And you really do have to do something differently so that you don't find yourself in the heat of the moment with these kids in the first place. That's true crisis prevention. And without that, I don't think you're going to get all the way there. Now, we've had people email us, and I'm going to read one of them in a second, telling us that um, they got there with a combination of collaborative and proactive solutions and nurtured heart. Um, there's people who've told me that they've gotten there through implementation of conscious discipline. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, 
So here's an email that we received, and then I'll turn to, uh, but let me give the phone number again, 347-994-2981, if you're interested in actively participating in the call and asking questions or making a comment. Here's another one. And the reason I have Christine on the call is because I want us to also talk about what we're doing at Lives in the Balance in our advocacy program to try to help you out and try to heighten awareness about these very counterproductive, punitive disciplinary practices that are still way too popular and that we continue to rely on as if we're supposed to use them, almost like it's the norm. Can't be the norm. We can do better. We don't have to keep using restraint and seclusion. Now, I'm limiting what I've been saying so far to restraint and seclusion, but what I'm really referring to is all punitive discipline. So I'm including in that group paddling at school, corporal punishment. Absolutely no reason for us to be using corporal punishment on anybody anymore. There is definitely a better way. Expulsion. Suspension, detention. So one of the things Christine has begun researching is the research on the negative effects of these punitive disciplinary practices, detention, suspension, expulsion, paddling, restraint, seclusion. To give you some of the ammo you need to convince your colleagues that maybe this stuff isn't a very good idea, we're going to be posting that research on the Lives in the Balance website. Christine, I'm not sure if you have any further comments to add about that, except that um, I'm glad you're working on it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm happy to be working on it. And, you know, it's not a new concept that these uh, the practice, these harmful practices are not good for kids and you know part of raising awareness you know within your school or within your school district is like Ross said having having the science to back you up and having the studies to back you up in in what we're saying and I also just want to add that I was an elementary school teacher myself and you know I watched the kids we lose through the lens of a former classroom teacher who struggled a great deal with um, behaviors of kids in my class. I didn't know about CPS or Ross Green or any of that when I was teaching, but was under, you know, an incredible amount of pressure to stick to my instructional minutes, to teach to the test, um, stay, stay within the schedule and make sure that I'm teaching everything on grade level. So I've been really thinking a lot about the question of, you know, is the expectation that we are putting on this particular child reasonable or realistic for them because as Ross has shown through his research and, and through the model most challenging behavior comes up when a, when a kid is met with an expectation that is beyond what they're capable of doing at the moment and you know and also with the lens of kids do well if they can and also teachers do well if they can if you, you don't know what you don't know I guess um, so part of this <laughs> goal of raising awareness with folks is to then be able to say to educators, you know, like, we know that this is not working. We need to do something 
different. Um, so we're working on building resources to um, make it so that folks are, you know, feel confident and empowered in those conversations within their communities. So, you know, I've never asked you this question, Christine, but um, I've always said that the reason us caregivers um, push kids harder to meet expectations that they've already let us know they cannot reliably meet is, number one, it's um, adult habit, but number two, we are operating under the um, erroneous belief that pushing kids to meet expectations gets the most out of a kid and elicits better performance. But never asked you this question. What I can't tell is if that's just adult tendency or if that's part of your teacher training. Were you trained to believe that pushing kids to meet expectations was the way to elicit better performance? Um, I, in some ways, yes, within the framework that, um, that there can be, you know, there can be racial bias in terms of, you know, I myself as a white woman, and I was teaching in classrooms where it was entirely children of color. And there have been, like, studies that show that sometimes white teachers don't hold their students of color to the same academic standards as they would a white student at a, because of implicit bias or explicit bias. So in some ways, I was trained, like, you know, you, you want to push kids to excel academically. And within that, it was a, it was a well-intentioned thing of, like, we want to give every student that we're teaching the opportunity to, to really excel academically. But the missing piece was, you know, not all kids are ready, are available for that kind of academic content when they walk in the door to school, right? Some of them have, you know, as we talked about, like developmental delays where we need to, we need to work um, to figure out what the lagging, what their lagging skill is that, that's keeping them from accessing the academic context that we're supposed to get at. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had students who, like I can think of one student in particular who, you know, he functioned, his math scores were probably in like a first or second grade level, but I was expected to teach him fourth grade math. And I know there's, you know, differentiation that you can do and things like that, but there was also the fact that he just couldn't, he couldn't really access what most of the class was doing. And then behaviors results from that. So, I mean, it's a complicated thing that teachers have to weigh all the time. Like how much, how much of my pushing is, is problematic versus how much is, you know, you want to, you want to help kids to see, like I, I can set really high goals for myself and with hard work, I can meet them. Um, so yeah, it's a, I think it's a tough balancing act that teachers have to do. So one more question before I turn to some of the emails that I didn't have time to answer on the follow-up to the film. This is the follow-up to the follow-up. Um, it does place classroom teachers in a very difficult position when we are asking them to get a kid who has yet to master first grade math to master 
fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a reasonable expectation? No, I don't think it is. I don't think it's a reasonable expectation to be put on the teacher to do that um, without that being built into the curriculum that we're doing. You know, I'm given as a fourth grade teacher, I'm given fourth grade curriculum. If I wanted to access, like I tried to give the student like first or second grade workbooks to work out of while the rest of the class was working out of their fourth grade workbooks. And I tried to cover up where it said the grade level on the book with stickers and things like that. But, you know, the students figured it out. They know (laughs) they can tell what they're doing is different. And that can bring up, you know, that can bring up feelings of frustration and shame with the student. And, and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't always, I didn't really know what to do. So what we're talking about now is something that I sometimes remember to say, and that is restraint and seclusion. Number one is complicated, not just something adults are doing to kids out of malice. No one wants strain or seclude a kid, but, this thing that I sometimes remember to say is that I actually think of restraint and seclusion as a bit of a, a metaphor for a lot of pressures that are on kids and teachers in school classrooms. Um, I don't have any doubt that the academic pressures that we are placing on educators are contributing to our restraint and seclusion numbers. Because if those academic pressures, and here, of course, I'm referring to the pressures of high-stakes testing, um, causing a teacher to push a kid harder, not Mm -hmm. just because they feel like it's doing the right thing by the kid and not just because they feel like they want to get the most out of every kid, but also because they feel like they're not doing their job or because they're not going to get job security if their Mm -hmm. kids don't make the progress they're supposed to. Now this restraint and seclusion issue has taken on new dimensions because all of these pressures factor in using restraint and seclusion but all of the factors that contribute to the fact that we ultimately do use restraint and seclusion. Mm -hmm. We do have a caller. We're going to see if this caller actually wants to talk to us. We have been striking (laughs) out so far, but here we go. Area code 919. We're going to roll the dice on you. Is there something you'd like to say? Area code 919. Is there part of the discussion you'd like to join in on? The call-in number is 347-994-2981. Here's an email that I didn't get to read in the follow-up discussion. It says, in your video, you were very harsh on restraints and seclusion. While I don't like to use either, there are times when all attempts in the moment are not working because the prefrontal cortex is completely unavailable. There have been times when I have used every de-escalation technique and the child is unable to be safe. At these times, I have needed to restrain in order to protect the child from themselves or other children from them, and I have needed to 
have a child removed to a quiet room where I stay with them until they can remain safe. The need to restrain has been very limited, only a few times, knock on wood, because other de-escalation techniques work, but I think saying that they are never useful is taking it too far. However, I would never call the situation therapeutic or a learning opportunity. It is purely about safety, and then reconnection will always be necessary after. So um, I know that the trauma-informed care uh, literature talks quite a bit about what's going on in kids' brains when they um, are completely out of control. And that's great. I also think that these are things we've known for quite some time. And so it's great for us to know that the prefrontal cortex is completely unavailable. Um, but if, but the whole point here is we don't want the kid to get to that point in the first place. So if we are relying too heavily on de-escalation techniques and not heavily enough on identifying and solving problems that are causing the behaviors that are causing us to need those de-escalation techniques in the first place, then we are relegating ourselves to de-escalating because we are waiting until behavior occurs before we leap into action to de-escalate. And what I'm arguing, what I'm positive about is that those behaviors are predictable because the problems that are causing those behaviors are predictable. And if those things are predictable, then that sets the stage for intervention to be almost exclusively. I'm sometimes asked the question, do I really think it's possible to get rid of all restraints and seclusions, especially in special ed classrooms where the kids are more difficult? And here's my answer. A lot of folks have done it. There are a lot of special ed classrooms that do not use restraint and seclusion, and they are safe. Here's an email that we received recently um, asking what my thoughts are on applied behavior analysis and do I think it produces long-term results. And the answer is the research on ABA is actually quite strong, especially in um, kids on the autism spectrum. Um, but I think it really has to do with what kind of an ABA therapist you're dealing with. Um, I've been working on an article for quite some time now about the difference, how ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, and CPS, Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, come together and diverge. And my usual response to that is that the language is quite different between the two, but in many cases are referring to similar things. Both Applied Behavior Analysis and CPS stem from what we might call social learning theory, which came after behaviorism, but it's all under the same tense, amazingly enough. Um, but when, when the two diverge, and there's a lot of more similarities between them than many people recognize, but when the two diverge, it's on two issues in particular. 
Number one, in collaborative and proactive solutions, you do not know what's making it hard for a kid to meet a particular expectation without input from the kid. You do not know. Not for sure. This is an ask-the-kid model. There are some, this is not all, but some, depending on how they were trained, uh, people who adhere to ABA who do not consult with the kid about what's making it hard for the kid to meet a particular expectation. The therapist figures it out all on their own. There's one point of diversion. Another point of diversion, in collaborative and proactive solutions, you are not rolling with a solution without the kid's input, involvement, ideas, and sign-off. This is collaborative and proactive solutions. There are some applied behavior analysts who do it all on their own. Not all, some. There are many people trained in ABA who love collaborative and proactive solutions. And there are some who are allergic to it. So there's really no single applied behavior analysis. There's just how people were trained. Even within ABA, people don't even agree with each other. Here's one of the other ones that we've received recently, and then I'll go back to ones that I didn't have time to respond to earlier. I'm only going to do this for about 15 or 20 more minutes because I want to make sure that we let you know how we're going to try to involve you moving forward. Actually, here it is. The number of special education students who receive disciplinary action is alarming. Um, actually, I, you know what? I think I did read this one. Let me turn to a different one. I thought I had this one marked. Here's somebody who had a lot of good questions. Um, here's what she is saying. I watched the documentary last night and I've been left with confusion and frustration. This documentary highlighted children with significant social emotional needs who are the outliers of the general population of students. However, these children do require and deserve the most resources. The documentary criticized how schools are working with these children but offered no alternatives for when a crisis is happening. After processing this overnight, I am left with these questions. What should schools do for children? who are in significant unsafe crises and are physically abusive to themselves or others, if not restraining and secluding. Allow them continue to continue unsafe behavior. This seems reckless and harmful to children to not intervene for their safety. So let me just respond to that one first. Um, first of all, by the time a kid is in a significant unsafe crisis, there's a highly predictable unsolved problem that set that whole thing in motion. Uh, there's a little hint in the film about alternatives, but the film was not intended to be an advertisement for collaborative and proactive solutions. Otherwise, we would have included a lot more about collaborative and proactive solutions and other non-punitive interventions in the film. It wasn't intended to be an advertisement for collaborative and proactive solutions. It was intended to be an expose 
about not just kid factors that are contributing to the school to prison pipeline, but also factors that schools are contributing to the school to prison pipeline. If a kid is in an unsafe crisis, it's true. You've got to do something. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got to do something once a kid is already being unsafe, then the crisis management program that I would pick is the Ukeru program out of Grafton, Virginia, where they're using pads and where they are going at this through a trauma-informed approach. But correctly, they still refer to themselves as a crisis management program. And I think that that's accurate. That is still crisis management. So it's one thing to ask, what should we do once a kid is already being unsafe? But if you want to dramatically reduce or completely eliminate restraint and seclusion, that is the wrong question to be asking. The right question to be asking is, how do we keep kids from being in that unsafe crisis spot in the first place? That is the question that we should be asking. If we're only asking the question, what should we do once he becomes unsafe, then we're still oriented toward crisis management. If we're gonna be oriented toward true crisis prevention, we have to ask different questions. Here's question number two. Schools have very limited resources, including staff who are able to step away from their jobs teaching others to work through hours and hours of high needs crisis. Still talking about crisis. What alternatives do you suggest to not send them home when they're not coming out of an unsafe crisis? I think my response to question number one is exactly what my response would be to question number two. We're still focused on the question, what do we do once the kid is already unsafe? You already know what to do once the kid is already unsafe. Every crisis management program teaches you to do it. Defuse, deescalate, keep everybody safe. That's what you do in a crisis. We've been focused on the wrong question. What is it about our classroom? What is it about the number of kids in the classroom? Was it about the limited number of teachers in a classroom? What is it about the expectations we are placing on kids that is causing us to be in a crisis more often? And what do we need to do so that we're not in a crisis as often as we are? Question number three from our emailer. While many of these children have experienced childhood trauma and or have ASD, ADHD, or another disability, how do you recommend addressing the trauma that they are causing the other children and the teachers in the classroom with their elevated behavior? The general population of students should not have to come to school feeling unsafe or worry that they may get hit with a chair or physically assaulted. What recommendations do you have to address their safety and loss of education due to the significant behavioral needs of these students. This is a very real challenge and one that keeps many of us awake at night. Well, I can certainly understand it keeping you awake at night, but it's kind of the same issue. If we keep these kids from becoming escalated by being more proactive in our work with them, and of course in the collaborative and proactive solutions model, being proactive means identifying and solving problems that are causing the behaviors 
that put us in a crisis in the first place. If we are doing that, then it's not only the behaviorally challenging students who are safer, everybody who's feeling safer. I was reading an article that we posted in the good news, bad news section of the Lives in the Balance website. It came out over the last two or three months. I don't remember what month. Talking about just the sheer number of times teachers are attacked in school and how unsafe they feel. And if I was an educator, uh, that would keep me awake at night too. Not, not just I wish there was something we could do besides laying hands on these kids, but I don't feel safe. When we are being proactive and when we are solving problems collaboratively, everyone is safer. When we are relying on crisis management, I don't know anybody who feels safe. And finally, this is not a question, but rather a comment on my reflection. It's item number four in this email. What we actually have is a mental health crisis that is significantly underfunded. I guess my last statement is that I am saddened that this video chooses to blame school systems for these challenges. There are certainly some responses in this video that are not appropriate and considered illegal. However, a school's job is to teach curriculum. It has become their job to address all of the barriers that children bring that hinder their ability to access this curriculum, which includes social needs, behavioral needs, poverty, hunger, anxiety, depression, fear, trauma, etc. These needs are not educational. They are needs not met through mental, they are needs not met through mental health. Blaming a school system is more harmful than helpful. Teachers, staff, and other students should not be expected to be abused and then blamed for causing that abuse. Well, I think I talked about the blame part earlier. No one is blaming anybody. And I agree. There's a lot walking into schools these days that has nothing to do with education. But here's what else I think. If we continue to take the stance that we are only about education, then we are going to continue losing a lot of kids. If academics was the only thing walking through the door, then we'd be in good shape if all we were focused on was educational. But that is not the only thing that's walking in the door. And a lot of these kids can be helped. And, and I'm not really a label guy, so I don't really care what the kid's diagnosis is. I care about what the kids' lagging skills and unsolved problems are because my experience tells me that when we figure out what this kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are and we engage in the kid in the process of solving those problems collaboratively and proactively, um, they do a whole lot better. But they're not going to do a whole lot better if we are limiting educators to education. Educators have always been among the most important socialization agents in our society. We've been relying on educators for a very long time to do more than just educate. Um, I realize it can be very overwhelming what's walking into classrooms these days. And especially when it gets unsafe, it can also be scary. But I'm always telling people not to sell educators short. The training that is needed to help these kids 
is actually not that extensive, but it does mean shifting our focus from behavior and modifying it to solving the problems that are causing that behavior, from reactive to proactive. Those are the big shifts, from labels to lagging skills and unsolved problems. Then educators are freed up once again to be the socialization agents we've always counted on them to be. It's not the intention of the film to blame. There's no bad guys in the film. There's just practices that have become obsolete, but that are emblematic of the pressures that our emailer has identified um, and that are true in many, many school systems. Eliminating restraint and seclusion means addressing those factors as well. As I've already said, I think it can get rid of about 50% of restraint and seclusion just by trying. The other 50% is going to require new lenses, new timing, new practices. Now, Christine, you've been biting your tongue, mostly because I've been talking the whole time. But feel free to weigh in on anything I just said. Well, I just keep returning to the thought of what is the purpose of education. Um, the last email that you read, um, the last part of it was about, you know, we're here to teach the curriculum or the, the main impression I got from it was the purpose of going to school is to reading, writing, and arithmetic, and that's it. Um, and I think, you know, maybe, I think, I think that things have evolved. We don't need to, you know, as, as humans now, we don't have the need anymore to, to have to memorize as many, as many facts and do as much kind of memorization, memorization type things. We have the Internet. We have other resources that can help us when it comes to information type learning. You know, what we need to do to prepare kids to thrive in society and to thrive in the future is we need to teach them how to solve problems. We need to teach them how to get along with each other, how to you know, be respectful of each other and, and, you know, see people who are different from them and, and find the bridge between them. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm just, I just keep returning to that thought of, you know, what is the purpose of education? It's certainly a lot more than just, you know, reading, writing, and math. Yes. And that's why social-emotional learning has become such a big deal because well, schools are about more than just academics. And when you think about, you know, the study that came out in the fall from the Secret Service did a study on school shootings, and their main conclusion from it was most of, there were common warning signs with all the kids, with all of the shootings, which then you, leads you to, they were preventable. If there were common warning signs with the kids, that means that if we were looking out for these kinds of things, if we had the you know, the capacity at school to, to, you know, they're talking a lot about mental health in that email, and that's, that's true. We do need greater mental health support, but I think it comes down to, you know, how closely are you paying attention to what the kids' actual needs are and knowing, you know, being well-versed enough in social-emotional learning things to understand the warning signs in kids so that we can prevent, you know, harmful and scary things from coming out in the classroom and you know as we're talking about this 
it leaves you with a, a sense of enormity. You know, we're talking about a, some really big and major problems, whether it's something that can be changed within an individual classroom, but we're also talking about systemic changes in terms of, you know, you touched on this at the beginning, but class, you know, in terms of class sizes, how much, how teachers are able to split their time amongst their students, what kind of support they have in the classroom, what kind of coverage they might have when they need to do like small group or one-on-one -on -one work with, with other students. And, you know, what kind of, yeah, and what kind of support staff is at the school to, to be able to step in so that everyone's needs can be met. Um, so when we talk about, you know, what are we going, what, you know, then the question is, what are we going to do? How can we, you know, how can we tackle this? How can we, how can we fix such a complex issue? And it's, you know, with, with school, with changes at the education level, it's a little bit tricky because there's a lot of local, that's called local control, meaning, the school you have, you know, you have the changes you can make within your school. So, you know, talking to your own teacher, talking to the principal, talking with the administration, and, you know, in those conversations, you want to do it in a way that's um, collaborative with them and hearing out their concerns for why they're using the type of discipline that they're using, but also, you know, expressing your concerns and trying to figure out, you know, how's a better way to do this. That's, you know, that's one branch of advocacy that, you know, parents can be involved with and people in the educational world can be involved with at their workplace. And, you know, the next level up is your school district. How involved can you be with your school board? Can you go to a meeting? Can you join a task force um, to try and tackle a problem that's, that's happening in your district? And then beyond that, you get to your state legislature, right? But oftentimes what will happen with the state legislature is they're going to say they're going to defer back to the school district. So it's this it's this um, multifaceted thing where we need change to happen within individual schools and within districts so that then the state legislature, when they defer to the school districts, the school districts will say, yeah, actually, we did stop using out-of-school suspension. We have an alternative where, you know, it's an in-school practice where we are actually working on, you know, doing a, doing a non-punitive intervention like CPS or conscious discipline or things like that to figure out the root of what's going on. Because we know, you know, out-of-school suspension, nobody's learning in that situation, and it doesn't set the child up to do anything differently in the future. It just alienates them. Um, so there are ways, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get, a lot of different ways to get involved. Um, and it's a matter of, you know, who's around you, what kind of resources do you have in your community, what experience do you have, and how can you leverage that to advocate on behalf of, on behalf of kids and the things that we're trying to work out and do through our advocacy program is we want to, you know, Ross and I are working on creating talking guides for folks in these situations so that you can approach it in a collaborative way um, so that you are, you know, doing what you can to not raise too much defensiveness in folks and so that you can make more progress. Um, we're also working on, you know, we've created a map of, so far, it's just limited to the U.S. I know we have a lot of folks in Canada, too, and other countries, but right now it's just in the U.S. Because what, a big part of this is being aware of what are, you know, what are your rights? What are the laws in your state when it comes to restraint and seclusion, if there are any at all? You know, what's in, who are your representatives and what are the different ways you can do things? So if you go on the Lives in the Balance website and click on it, you'll see, you'll see a map of the U.S. You can click on your state. 
And on there, there'll be your restraint and seclusion laws, suspension laws, and any kind of current events that I've come across that are happening in your education world. Um, and as Ross mentioned earlier, we're also, I'm also pulling together um, a library or <laughs> a treasure trove of scholarly articles and studies to help to help back this up. Because it's, it's a multi-step process, right? We want to raise awareness, and I know that there was certainly some frustration from people from watching the film and saying like, okay, this is a problem now, what are we going to do? But that's also kind of the point. We, we also, Lives in the Balance, want to do this in a collaborative way. So what I do a lot of is I talk with teachers all around the country and school psychologists, things like that, and hearing out like, how were you able to end restraint and seclusion in your school? Or how did you stop suspending kids? Or how did you move away from, you know, any other kind of punitive class and discipline things so that we can we can help to, you know, create some leaders in this and folks that we can turn to, to to use as a model. Like, look, this is how this school did it. Let's show you what they did and maybe that you can help to do that can help you to figure out what to do within your school. Um Another way that we're going to be, it's not happening yet, but hopefully soon, is we want to be hosting Advocator Town Hall meetings, which will be um, an online forum where, you know, similar, I guess, to the radio show, but probably in video format, where, you know, people can, can tune in like you're doing now, you can submit questions beforehand, we'll have a theme or a skill that we're working on for that particular town hall meeting, it might be like how to get your administration on board or doing things differently or how to, uh, how to work with your school board, different things like that. Well, we can have experts from, you know, people like you out there who are already doing this, who can come in and, and talk folks through this. This is something that we don't want anyone feeling alone in doing this work. There's a lot of us out there that want things to be done differently. And so we're trying to to provide those connections for people. So through the town hall meetings, we'll, we'll be able to invite people to share their knowledge and also, you know, take questions from the audience. And in that, and in, in doing so, you'll be able to see, like, who else is here, you know, and who else is who else is nearby me and things like that. We also have a Facebook group for advocators, so you could always go on there and say, like, hey, I live in Tennessee. Anyone here who also lives in Tennessee you want to, like, put our heads together, which what does our state need and things like that? Um, so yeah, there's a there's a lot in the works. We're also wanting to be collaborative in this process. So you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, I have some ideas or I have some experience doing this, I have some things I think I can offer. Like, please reach out to us and and let us know. We want to we want to also be listening, not just telling folks what to do. We want to be listening to what the real problems are, what's getting in the way, and what's working for people, so that we can spread that word. And for goodness sakes, if you have not yet signed up to be an advocator, <laughs> please get on the Lives in the Balance website and sign up. Um, just go to the advocacy section and go to advocators and sign up so that you are that you remain in the loop on the issues and also on our efforts to give you the help that you need, but also to mm -hmm. be part of the process um, mm -hmm. in keeping us informed um, with your ideas and um, with your comments. Um, let me just read two more emails and then we're going to call it a program for today. 
Um, unless, Christine, there's anything else you'd like to add before I do these two more emails? Um, not right now, but we'll see what these emails are about. The, no, nothing nothing uh, too, nothing too uh, controversial in these. Uh, this one says, <laughs> okay. I've been to your training and now watch the movie. Love this mindset shift. Mindset shift. So important. For those of, work, of us that work in schools that already have this mindset shift, kids do all if they can. Do you have further trainings in the CPS model? I understand the concept of problem solving with kids, but would love to see it put into practice. What exactly this looks like, concrete examples of the process. Um, I've got a few offerings for you. First of all, if you're not already aware, the Lives in the Balance website has a walking tour for educators in the CPS resources section filled with streaming video and audio programming uh, to show you what the process looks like. But we also have a two-day training coming up on June 4th and 5th. Um, and because these programs get listened to for years afterwards, I shall say 2020, even though for those of you listening now, that sounds like a statement of the obvious. June 4th and 5th, 2020, we are doing a um, two-day virtual training. can sign up for that um, on the Lives in the Balance website. Um, I think it's on the home page um, where you can sign up for a virtual training on the collaborative and proactive solutions model. And then finally, this last one. I love this documentary, and I think that it is a very good synopsis of the school-to-prison pipeline. And I think, although it tends to be more extreme in some parts of North America than others, than others that we are generally failing some of our students who need our support rather than our punitive methods. As a teacher who uses a lot of conferencing with students on the CPS approaches, how do you suggest educating colleagues who do not view these methods as efficient for working with our most challenging students? I'm in my first year in a new role supporting our most behaviorally challenged kids, and the most challenging part has not been the kids. It has been about shifting the mindset of the grown-ups who are supporting that child. Well, um, my usual recommendation is that you start a book study and try to make sure that your principal and if there is one assistant principal are involved in the book study um, and get people who are of like mind together and maybe even some people who are just a little bit curious but aren't there yet and maybe even some people who think that this is just a bunch of malarkey do a book study with them. And I've got, I've got the perfect book for you. And I, I, I'm not very promoting of books, but the book that I would use is Lost at School. About 50% of it is a running story that takes place uh, in a school. And all of the common reactions that people have to the model, people who are enthusiastic about it in the beginning, people who are on the fence, principals and assistant principals who want to make sure that the school stays safe, people who aren't yet necessarily aware of the damage done by our punitive interventions, and a few people who are reacting very strongly against this crazy notion of collaborating with kids on solving the problems that affect their lives. Do a book study. Get as many people in there as you can. There's a discussion guide available for Lost at School um, I believe that's on the CPS Connection website, cpsconnection.com. 
um, in the uh, CPS store, you'll find the book study guides and um, get the conversation going in your building. Make sure, though, that you sign up to be an advocator. Make sure you stay in touch with us to let us know how you're doing so that we can share your successes with other people who are asking the exact same questions you are. I wish I could say that there is something, there's a seismic shifting pissy one-liner that you can say to people who are still stuck on kids do all if they wanna, who you're trying to bring around to kids do all if they can. There is no seismic shifting pithy one-liner. Taking a look at ourselves, questioning our beliefs, looking at our practices and wondering if they are really doing the good that we think they are, and educating ourselves about other practices that have been proven to move things in the right direction. Boy, I wish I could get through all of these, but I'm very excited that we're going to be doing town hall meetings featuring people who are um, engaged in this and being successful with it so that we can all learn from them. Christine, thank you for taking time out of your evening to join me on this follow-up discussion. Thank you for having me. And um, thanks to all of you who are listening and who are going to listen to the recording. And uh, don't worry, we, um, we're going to stay in touch with you and see if we can do some good. In the meantime, that's going to do it for now. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening in. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>